Welcome to the Kira Feelin podcast. This week, I speak to Green Party leader Eamon Ryan about his childhood, family life, and struggles he has overcome. Without those titles, Eamon, how would you best describe yourself? Um, first time, very glad to be here. How would I describe myself? I would think I'm just an ordinary, sort of Joe type of guy. I, I South Dublin, born and raised. Both my parents were from Cork. So you kind of weird dual identity. Um, I'm married to Victoria White and we have four beautiful children. Now they're not children anymore. They're in their 20s. But I think that defines me probably more than that is my family, the family I came from and the family I'm within. And like all Irish families, we have our travails and we have our triumphs. And um, I, I'm a politician. Um, but not always. I was before that. I, w- I ran two businesses and... I think um, I'm a green. and But again, I go back to what I was saying, being an ordinary Joe. I see that as just ordinary and just kind of obvious or for me kind of just utterly sane. So, so that's how I see myself. But primarily, I suppose, it's where I've come from, my family, my roots in, in both my mother and father's family. I feel that quite closely. They both died recently. So I feel very close to them in a strange way. And similarly, I'm my f- children are now flying the flying the coop, fle- leaving home. So I'm starting to miss them, and that defines me more than anything else. Did you have any difficulty in discovering your identity while growing up? I don't think so. I think I was just I, when I say an ordinary Joe, like. A, like I, as a young boy, particularly, it was just running into things, running into football, running into school. Like not like I was any good at school, but but it was kind of it was just charge into things and into life. And I think maybe boys develop a bit later. I don't think I developed until my twenties in terms of and God, I was hopeless in so many different ways. Like you know, too much drinking, too not great with girls or relationships. Like. Um, but I was happy, I think, just on a in a charging and just being happy to be alive and, and getting on with it and not thinking too much. Um, my mother used to give out, so she said with someone, oh, that person reflects too much. And I was like, God, you could probably do with a bit more reflection. But that was my character. It was just, I suppose I was just full of energy and joy of being alive and just getting on with it. So would it be fair to say that you were a little bit wild in your younger days? Yeah, but not in a kind of, in a way that was normal then. I think I grew up in the 60s in South Dublin and 70s, and there was great freedom. I mean, it was it was very, the the children, the child population outnumbered the adult population by a massive majority. There was such incredible, now there was dangers and there was downsides to it. But for me, there was just freedom. You know, literally, I mean, I ran out the door and ran in any direction, into any door in our street, pretty much. And there was no, there was no real, yeah, you had, you had great freedom and great socializing in that. And like, as I said, I wasn't good in school, but I was good at football and I was good at rugby. I was good at um, the kind of important things of life, like being in a gang or being kind of getting on with people. Listeners might find it hard to believe you saying that you weren't good in school. Yeah. What was the, ter- the, the turning point then for you in your life, if you say that you probably didn't mature until your 20s? What changed for you to, I, I suppose, know, I grow up? I was unlucky. I went to Holy Child Primary School in Dundrum, which 
just it was unfortunate at the time. I think went through a difficult period. The headmaster died, and there were, I remember one year I did about five or six different teachers rather than one teacher. And as I said, I mean, it was a big class. There was about forty in the class, and it was kind of. Um, and then I learned how to fight. I was, and that sounds a bit dramatic, but that, that's what I remember. Like I remember literally having to fight sometimes and not wanting to, but it was just it was that was the nature of the school at the time. And I didn't learn to read or write, and I literally had to go to a special school to learn to read and write before I went to secondary school. And I remember that secondary school I went to Gonzaga in, in Ranla, and it was very competitive academically. So you were given your place in class every every Christmas, every summer. You got your exams. There were 23 of us in the class, and I was always in the 20s. And I knew that I was always counting on one or two other to be 22 and 23, so I might be 20 or 21. And, and, and But slowly but surely, I kind of start... Well, for me, it changed when I started learning about ecology in six, in, in when I was about 16, and I developed a love of learning in doing that. And that that really gives equips you to to pull yourself up, in a sense, because I was learning for my own sake or for my own way, in my own way. And that kind of slowly but surely, I kind of improved in terms of academically, but it was never stellar. But actually, it was funny. I met one of the schoolmates from school recently, and he was one of those colleagues who were in the 20s. In other words, who was in the bottom 10% of the class. And he's probably been one of the most successful people out of that class. So it doesn't your academic career doesn't define you, or certainly didn't define me. And and it's important you do well and you get you're, you're good at it and so on. But particular boys, I think they develop a bit later. I think I was an example of that. And and uh, so I only really started learning properly later on. Why did you have to learn to fight? I don't know. It was weird. It was one of those things where um, you, you know you were all round in a circle. And claim, claim, claim. And for whatever reason, it was kind of a tribal, Lord of the Flies a bit. It was kind of tribalist. It was kind of a, and not all the time and not like, not serious fighting, you know, it was just, but. Are we like, talking throwing punches? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember, I remember literally, I can only be about seven or eight. And I remember thinking, oh God, it's my turn now. I'm going to have to fight this guy. And I didn't even dislike the guy. And like, but it was just, I don't know, that was, we had to do. And so in you went. Did you, did, you, did you ever win? No, no one wins in that. Like, you know, you feel hurt. You don't mm. just feel physically hurt. You feel hurt by doing it. Like, mm. I don't think violence like that is natural in a way. I just think, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being a bit, I mean, it was a long time ago. It's 50 years ago. But I do think there was more violence in our society then. I think the world has improved. I, like I say, for example, like when I was young, let's go into a pub, first of all. You'd pretty much right, count your, measure your watch. As, oh, now there's a fight coming now. And I don't think that happens as much now. Now, yes, there's worse violence. There's more severe violence in society. But there's not that casual violence that there was back 40, 50 years ago. Thank God. You mentioned that you learned to read and write later in life. Why was that? Well, it's later in life. When I was about eight or nine. It was because okay. I because I couldn't get into the secondary school my parents wanted to send me because they, they tested me. They realized he doesn't he can't read and write. He'd have to go and learn to read and write before he goes into the school. So. Okay. I was lucky. I, I kind of picked up, and and I liked the school. I mean, I liked the Holy Cross. I, it wasn't like it wasn't bad. I'm not blaming the school in this, but I also liked secondary school. But I was more into the rugby than I was into the academics. What was life like for you as a child growing up in Ireland, in your well, family life? I was saying, um, 
our family was, I love my mom and dad and, and their parents. I knew our former grandparents and that's quite rooting. I think that's really, and actually my grandparents ended up living with us. My grandmother had a stroke and in quite an amazing act, my mother brought her into our house and for six years or so, we kind of pretty much um, cared for her, which was, she was very severely disabled. But my grandfather was also living with us and I also got on well with him and I knew my grandparents on my father's side. And so that sort of sense of connection is not just your parents, but it's going back into the roots of, of it. Now, we had our problems, like every family. My dad was working in public relations at the time for AIB. And that meant he was in Donny Nesbitt's most nights. That was the way the world of public relations and journalism worked at that time. He had an amazing career and amazing ability to befriend people in that world. But it meant he was absent from home. That was tough, tough for my mother. But they got through that, and I think for me it was it was a very loving place. I I I kind of I mean yes, every family like every family has its travails, and we did too. But my underlying sense was appreciation for the for that sense of rootedness, our connection, our love. When you mentioned that he was in a certain pub, was there an alcohol issue there? He would have been several pubs. <laughs> he would have been in not just one. Yeah. I mean, they weren't there having lemonades at one o'clock in the morning or 12 o'clock at night. Okay. But he was, also, he, was also, he was also a very good artist. He was a very good painter. So my dad had this weird chameleon characteristic or he was kind of in the business banking world. But he was also very serious and a very capable painter. And he was very friendly with the very famous art painter, Tony O'Malley, who was also in the bank at the time. And, and then himself and other Jim Manning, the three of them started painting, exhibiting. And dad throughout his life did that. Our house was always a studio as well as a home. And so he had this kind of, he had this weird, both being in the financial journalism world, but also being in this very creative mode. And the ap- absence of him being at home, how did that impact you? Or your, I think your... that was hard when I was a kid. You know, I think as a, particularly as a young man, you know, that's come back to what I said about my own kind of slightly wild, you know, not mad wild, like it's pretty normal in our society. It's very much tolerated. But yeah, I think that was probably a reflection of just, yeah, angry with what was happening at home. In what sense? Angry at his absence. Okay. When this coalition formed, your wife, Victoria White, wrote in her final column for the Irish Mm. Examiner about how she could no longer write it because there would be some sense of a conflict of interest. Um, She wrote in the column how she was sad to be giving it up and also that she thought she would be lonely. Mm. How did you feel when you read her words? I always loved reading her words because I think she's a very good writer in both the Examiner and in the Herald and in other publications. Um, I think she's very honest, searingly honest sometimes. Uh, and I'm very conscious of that kind of, you know, I'm I'm here in this very fine office and like having an f- incredible series of, of daily events where I'm in the centre of a lot of international and national kind of discussions. I'm very privileged with that. And I'm conscious, yeah, she's at home. And we also have a son who has special needs and we have to attend to help you know, with him. So it's tough. Um, she's, also, she's still writing. She's writing novels and always will always write. She, she, like, she has that instinctive gene 
like her father before him, her. And um, and I think it's it's uh, that I think was the right decision, but that was her decision, and and, and I always respect it because I think it's difficult. You know, it would restrict some of her freedom to write on opinion pieces. If the first obvious response would be, well, why don't you talk to your husband? He's a leader of a party in government. Mm. So I think she made the right call. But she's still writing full steam. How has the pressure of the job itself, um, you know, you've spoken about the anger that you felt when your father was absent mm. at home. You know, you're probably very absent at some stages when you're traveling with this job. You mentioned that, you know, you do have a child with additional needs. Mm. Is it fair to say that you feel some sort of guilt for being away so, so long? Yeah, I think it's like the politics is not easy on families and there is a lot of travel. And that's not just travel. When you come home, your maybe head is full of, God, what do we do with this, that and the other? You know, whatever the issue of the day is, you're you're understandably kind of mulling that over through so it's not only when, when you know when being away from home but how really attentive are when you get home is something that i think particularly politicians um, have an issue with um do you know strangely covid has been a terribly difficult period but actually in some ways for me it gave me a real benefit of of not having so much travel or not having so much public meetings and so on and and even now we've come out of it I just I don't think the world has slightly returned to the old ways where there's just not quite as much social or other social related to work kind of events. Mm. So so actually I find and, and you can spend time at home in a way now that maybe wouldn't have been as easy four, four or five years ago. Mm. And I think that's a good thing. How do you cope with that guilt? Uh, well, you try and make you try and try and make amends, I guess, in terms of making sure you do spend time or that you do you are attentive. I don't think I like all that you know, kind of having a guilt feel or coping with the guilt. Well, the best way of doing that is not having the problem by making sure you do carve out time. It's not easy, but I think that's the only response. How has your job um, impacted your children? You four children, three boys and one girl. They're all aged, I think, in their twenties. Mm. It's a uh, it can be a fantastic time in people's lives, but it also can be very difficult, particularly with the presence of social media. But what has the job, your job, how has that impacted their lives? I, they'd have to answer that. Um, I'm sure there are advantages and disadvantages, upsides and downsides. And um, they're all quite interested in politics, but not like, not kind of a, a party political, as it were. Um, but they... They're very, they, and I suppose they've grown up in a house, not just their father, but their mother is very political in the sense that, you know, she's very strong views and, and very well able to articulate them. And so they probably have grown up in in that environment where where ideas are challenged or where you share them or where you're, you're, um, you're kind of, you, you do discuss issues of the day. And and I think, so they've, they have that interest. They're very... They're they're still in education. All of the, all of the, all of them are four, um, and it's but it's education. They're interested in politics, economics, sociology. They're interested in Europe. They're interested in the kind of yeah the 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 issues of the day. I think do I, they, they probably inherited that. Do they ever give you a hard time? Every single minute. 
They don't, there's no, like it's unrelenting. Like dog questions are nothing on it. No, I mean, I, I'm serious. And, and like, not just for the sake of it, like to put the knife in and then turn it and, and, and keep going. In what sense? They know more than better than me. They, they, they're very, uh, yeah, they're, they're kind of well able to hold their own. And would they challenge you in policy? Oh, God, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So plenty of sometimes arguments back and forth and... Yeah, healthy, but also understandable. And I kind of, and I say this, like sometimes I'm there at leaders' questions and, you know, you the likes of Pierce, Starty or whoever else given out to you, you know, about the housing crisis. And what I say back to them, do you think you're the only people who have a concern about that issue? Do you not think that my son or daughter is not going to raise that and say, what's the story here? Mm-hmm. Like, and things like that, they're particularly strong, where they rightly have, say, have a sense, how can they grow up with some of the great opportunities that I and my wife grew up with. Mm. I think that's a real issue, intergenerational issue. Yeah. As to, and I think that generation rightly saying, so where's our houses? Yeah. Your son has a rare form of autism. How difficult was it to get that diagnosis? It was difficult because the rareness is one, he was late onset. And so... He passed all his markers for the. He, I mean, I'll never forget the day he was born. He was a, he's a twin, um, and for the first four years, everything was fine. Um, Tommy was, and now we see it like we family videos from the time, and you actually look back and you see, well, was it really fine? You can see little signs like you know, Tommy would have closed close one eye because trying to avoid the sensory, you know, he'd cover an eye or he'd block his ears, you know, because he'd be sensitive to sound or other sensory kind of issues and when we were about six when he was about five or six it kind of started to become noticeable and and I actually went to a traumatic phase with this late onset diagnosis so late onset autism which can come in a really um, debilitating way in a sense very frightening for the person that, that their sensory system start to re- be really challenged and so we went to get all sorts of um uh, help from and it, to be honest like a lot of parents out there with with children with disabilities it wasn't like the system snapped into action and gave us a quick diagnosis it took a couple of years and wasn't the finest um in my mind moment for the Irish health care system or health education system which is good by and large but it's not serving i think children with disabilities well and particularly in that early diagnosis period but eventually, we, we he he was diagnosed with autism and intellectual disabilities, or whatever word you use. Actually, it's kind of difficult and, and complex. But um, and but then since then, I would say we've been actually really lucky. Um, Tom went to St Peter's originally, but then went to uh, Satanta, which is a school for children with autism on the Stillorgan Road, and it was brilliant, like just brilliant. His teacher, the headmaster, everything about the place was was really inspiring, like in prefabs, not the finest of big buildings, but but brilliant care and attention and um, love. And and similarly now he's in Giel, he's in a, a daycare centre, which is actually near the school I went to. We call it college. And um and it's 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 tough and there's no respite. But it's also, in a strange way, myself and Victoria would say maybe in a way, one of the upsides is we will never stop parenting. One of the downsides is we will never stop parenting. Mm-hmm. You know, you always have that responsibility. So he'll never be able to live independently, would he? No. No, not, no. 
how do you plan then as parents for the future in the case that live yourself to, and Victor... Live, live to ripe old age and know we're going to have to have some sort of mechanism as we get older. But for the next 20 years, please, day, please God, we'll be able to manage. And we do manage. Like it's, it's quite rich in its own way. Have you refrained from going there yet? And what could happen in the future? I tend to come back to what I said, what you're like as a kid. I'm still in that charge ahead. Get on, you know, just deal with the day. Yeah. Uh, so my, my wife would be better at that. I'm, I can tend to think about today and tomorrow, not necessarily next week. Take me back to a time in your life where it was sheer happiness and you wish that you could relive it all over again. I think I'm back to saying about that being that boy on that street. I grew up in Frankfurt Park in Dundrum. It's kind of cul-de-sac, typical, like middle class, South Dublin. And there was a tribe of children on that road, literally. Um, and I do remember a moment, there was a moment where I was just absolute joy to be alive, uh, to be in nature and aware of nature. And I had a stream of God, just a moment of consciousness, being, being aware of that, you know, oh God, how lucky I am to be alive. And it was very tangible. It was very real. It was very personal. And a couple of times in my life that's happened. One the time I was about 17, that time I was studying ecology. I had a similar experience in, in nature once. And that sounds a bit, I don't know, a bit dramatic or something, but it was true for me. I think it's true for most people. I think like just the, when occasionally you catch yourself, God, I'm alive in this amazing world and how joyful that is. And that's that doesn't that belongs to everyone, I think. That's a, a consciousness that's innate and, and incredibly special in humankind. And I think I've I've felt that a few times. I've read previously, um, and correct me if this is wrong, that you got heavily involved in cycling because you once came across a fatal car crash. Well, no, I was involved listening in that time, as I said. In the 70s and 80s, it, like there was downsides as well. Or the people, the number of people being killed in the roads then were were huge. I was involved one night in a collision, in a car crash, where a car incident where a woman was knocked down, and that then she died three days later. A beautiful young woman from Leitrim, and that was harrowing. I also, but there were other friends who died in various car crashes and incidents. So I didn't get involved in cycling because of that. I, I Maybe I got involved in, well, I got involved in campaigning for safer roads, all right. But I, at that stage, I was already involved in cycling and, to be honest, coming out of unemployment. I was uh, unemployed in the mid, mid to late 80s. And, but I got involved in the Green Party then, and I was thinking to myself, I want a green business. And I'd always been into cycling and into cycling touring. I said, I know what I'll do. I'll run a cycling tour. And the fatal car crash, were you involved in it or what happened? I was there when it happened. Yeah, I wasn't uh, directly involved, but I was in my car and this lady was a pedestrian. She came across the road and a car coming down the road hit her and knocked her 50 yards down the road and killed her. Well, she had had head injuries, which she died from three days later. That must have left a lasting impact on you to witness yeah. something like that. It did, yeah. Did you need to seek help afterwards? Not specifically for that, no. No. I think like a lot of people in my generation, I think it's a good thing, a healthy thing that we do seek help. Like, you know, therapy is not a bad thing. It's a very healthy thing, very good to have someone to talk to. But I, I wasn't specifically for that. It's probably just in a general sense of, uh, yeah, th that was a kind of difficult time. Have you had therapy before? In that time, yeah. Okay. And how did it get you through it? Were you in therapy for long or? 
No, it's just having a counsellor. I don't know if that's what you call therapy, just someone you'd speak to, professional. And I found it really good. I found it a really reflective way of considering your own upbringing and your own characteristics. Yeah, I found it a very, very healthy, useful thing to do. I found it helped in terms of developing relationships with other people. Okay. In, in what sense? In terms of... Holding on to a girlfriend <laughs> and finding a girlfriend and committing. And, yeah, having a... Having, be confident. You're being calm and confident in yourself. That makes it easier for you to, to kind of open up to others and to really appreciate that. What are the many misconceptions that people have about you and why do you think they exist? I don't know, because I, it's very hard. I mean, you're obviously kind of trying to think, how to, what do other people think? I mean, listen, if I go online and I look at Facebook or Twitter and I kind of look at what do people think of me, I say, God almighty, it's really nasty or mm. really negative. But my real life experience, and I spend a lot of time around the country, and outside Ireland too, but particularly in Ireland, I spend a lot of time around the country, and I have friends pretty much all over the country. And... So that's my experience. It, mm. Like whatever's online or com- political commentary, you know, that's fine. That's part of the job. But actually what really kind of moves you one way or the other or, or you measure is just how do you get on people in person? And back to what I said, a very start being an ordinary Joe, I find myself kind of very, I love this country and our people and my people are, you know, the, my neighbor's friends. And get on well with them. So I kind of, that defines how I think, um, how, I get, how I get on with people. What they think of me, I suppose, that's harder for me to call. Does it annoy you when you are constantly plagued with the situation where you fell asleep or you were taking 40 winks or closed yeah, your eyes? Hurt, no, listen, that hurt me. Because that was like disrespectful to the office in a sense. One thing I would say, and I didn't say it at the time, but I think that I'd been working pretty much 24-7 for the previous month. That day, I think I must have done about 10 speeches, interviews, serious, big, heavy meetings. It was 10 o'clock at night, and there were five roll call votes in a row called. So 150 names read out. And I'm on a sofa that would, it was comfy as you can get. So I, I briefly nodded off. I deeply regretted that because I thought, yeah, maybe that, I just, it was... It was it was a, a mistake, and but you dust yourself down and and um, get back up and work the next day. Do you not have some level of frustration though that members of the public may not realise why you happen to close your eyes for uh, a couple of minutes because of the stress of the job that it brings? I don't know. I, listen, you you stand for election. You run for office. You're not. It's a volunteer thing. You don't. So, giving out about some of the conditions or the no, that wouldn't. That's not what the public deserve. I, I think you 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 run to serve. So you do it to your best of your ability. Late last year, you sadly lost your mum, Mary, mm. um, in a tragic accident mm. on Inishboffin. How are you coping following her passing? I miss her. Because I miss, there's a question, come back to what I said about knowing my roots. I knew both my grandparents, all four of my grandparents very well. And there's loads of kind of things where you'd ask, Mom, you know, she's the only person who could answer a question I might have. You know, who was that person or how, what happened then? And she's not there to answer it. And that's it. And um, I miss both of them. I miss, um, I miss her calls and, some, and I miss her 
humor, so I miss her a lot. One of the good things, now it's no good things, but um, firstly, she passed away very quickly and peacefully. Mm-hmm. Secondly, myself and my siblings, my three, our two brothers and a sister, we, I think, in the last year, it is like we've managed all that in terms of the funeral and you know her will and everything in a way that brought us together. So, mm. and I think that would be the hardest thing if you found in the loss of a parent, particularly your last parent, that you divided. I think that would be really hard. But mm. actually, my experience with my brothers and sister is it has pulled us together because we have that common feeling, and it's a skill in parenting or it's a reality of parenting. And then we have four children, myself and Victoria. You don't, the love of one doesn't diminish the love of another. It's an infinite supply. It's, 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 um, and I think we have that since all four, myself and my three siblings, that with our parents, like my mother had a favorite in each of us. You know what I mean? She wasn't, she wasn't, uh, she was a very deep well of love and a very, um, she was, she was, yeah, it was that sense of infinite love and, that doesn't go away. Even if she's not here, that still remains, I think. Mm. In the eulogy, you spoke about how, you know, that love that she gave you, that the love to you and your siblings was the foundation stone to your lives. Do you think that you are a better man because of that love? Do you think that you might be able to love better than others? What exactly did that love mean to you? Well, it's it's everything. It's your it's your foundation, as I said, because it is. Um, you know, it's it's selfless. It's it's uh, it's not it's never diminishing. It's it's uh, um, it's the cornerstone. So, I think all four of us spoke. We we did an unusual eulogy where we all shared two and a half minutes each, and I think all four of us said the same thing in a different mm-hmm. way. We were trying to capture different periods of our, our life, but. We had that common sense. And as I said, the love of one didn't reduce the one, the love of another. When something tragic like that happens, an 85-year-old woman, vibrant, mm. in great health, um, and then a tragic accident ends her life, does it change your perspective on life? No, I don't think so. It's, 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 it's an, I'm sadly, it's, it's something we're all facing. And... Like mum was 85, she would have been 86 the next, or two days later, she died two days before her 86th birthday. And she was having, as I said, she was about to go to a party in our house, about to walk over, having walked the island the previous day. So in great form, she fell and hit her head. And um, But maybe in some ways you look a year later and think, well, she was spared maybe a more degenerative disease or some other period. So... We, I mean, God, I would love to see her live for a number, X number of years, but I'm afraid that's life. It comes to an end, mm-hmm. all our lives. How important is faith to you? Uh, it is important to me. I grew up in, like I talked about my grandparents, they all came from that very strong tradition, Catholic tradition. I grew up in a city and in a school or a country, a home, which was very post-Vatican too. So for us, me, God was love and not the kind of uh, fearful thing. It was a very modern kind of... My uncle was a Dominican and I, he would have been one of my heroes as a, as a missionary. And so I would have... And I went to a Jesuit school where I, and I would, would have a lot of time for the that Jesuit ethos of service for others and awareness of what's going on in the world. 
And so those roots are very strong. I am what you might call a Roman Catholic in the sense that I think I'm very similar to most Irish people. Actually, if you look at what happened recently, Francis, Pope Francis carried out a synod, um, a listening exercise in the Irish church. What came back? Well, what I would agree with, I think we should have women priests. I think we should have gay, uh, open, like better rights for gay people within the church. I think, um, but there's a lot to be gained from my mind, from the sense of community you can get in a parish, from the wisdom that's read out from 5,000 years of thinking uh, and and also a wonder of the world, about the world. And lastly, I'd say this, just in terms of my own faith, I mentioned Pope Francis there, like what he wrote, the letter he wrote, well, how many years ago now? Almost 10 years ago, eight years ago, the encyclical Laudato Si, is I think one of the most important letters that's been written in, in a kind of a explaining the world and putting a context in how we live in the world and realizing we are that God's creation is something we have to protect. So so I find, and lastly, I'd say, come back to this, I said I have a son with a disability. When I go to the outer edge of people and dealing with people with disability, I find people coming from religious backgrounds. When I work in poverty or where you're looking at the cutting edge of who's serving the most poor, who's visiting the person in prison. It is it's often people with a religious view. And so I'm, I, I come from that tradition and I'm part of it. Do you pray? I'm not as good at praying. Come back to what I said earlier on about charging into things. I pray in my own way, but I wouldn't. I'm not as my wife kind of gives out. Says, you're hopeless at that or you're, you're all talk. Um, but I do go to church and sit and in that contemplative meditation, particularly in community, and particularly when you sing. I go, my wife's Church of Ireland, so I go to her church, and I go to my local parish, and we kind of slag off each of the other. But I find that prayer, because at the, though that quiet moment when you're with people from your community, reflecting, listening, and um, yeah, that's, that's prayer. What do you think, hap- think happens when someone passes away? My dad had this phrase, he had loads of great phrases, but he said, we know there, what is it, there are elements to our, there are dimensions to our existence that we neither know nor understand. And I think um, after death, like I, I, I can, the only equivalent answer is I remember when our first son, son was born, I was there with my wife, and there was an incredible sense when literally just after he was born, he was wrapped and was sitting there facing us. And there was an amazing sense that he was really conscious and aware of where he was, but also that he had come from somewhere, you know, that he wasn't just, a, 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 that he was coming from some place. And I, so I hope and pray that we head to the same place. We go back into some a sense of dimension or creative creation that we don't understand because we don't understand only a fraction of things of what's happening in the, in the world. So reincarnation, would be, it'd be fair to say that's something that you might... Believe in? I believe I believe that we 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 don't we're not removed from creation. We just probably find a different form within creation. I hope. Tell me what is one thing that you would change about Ireland and why? Maybe come back to what we were saying there about those accidents and seeing someone being killed on a road. I do think maybe one of the things I've been going on about for thirty five years now is, yeah, we, if we were less car dependent, it would, might make for a better Ireland in, for a variety of different ways. Firstly, 
it's much more socially just. Not everyone can afford a car. Not everyone can actually drive. But secondly, it creates a local environment that's quieter, cleaner, and in the end, more efficient. The car's been great freedom. And it's not like, I mean, I drive. And sometimes it's brilliant to have the facility. But when everyone drives, you get gridlock. Guess it gets, it's not environmentally sustainable, but also it takes from a sense of community. Come back to what I said earlier on about growing up in a street in South Dublin in the 70s, 60s. I know this is a cliche. I know that sounds kind of so trite in a way. We played on the street and there was a lot of learning in, in that. And so, yeah, if there was one thing I'd change, I'd have much more, back, go back 30, last 30, 40 years, and we built a lot more public transport and really made it safe to walk and cycle, I think we'd have a better country. I don't think it's impossible to turn that around. We're doing that. And I think in 30, 40 years, people will look on and say, God, I was a bit mad, wasn't it? The way everyone had their own one-ton box burning, like you're, you're sitting on a thing which burns these fossil fuels, which were heating the planet, pushing yourself another six inches forward while the rest of the craft traffic's stuck in a jam. That, that's something I'd love to change. And lastly, a piece of advice you would give to my next guest. Um, can I give a piece of advice my mother gave, shared with me? And it came from, she got it from a, a friend of hers in London who was talking to a builder, an Irish builder. And it's just so obvious, so simple, it's so kind of repeated elsewhere. But put yourself in the other person's shoes. His advice was you always have to remember, you can't remember that someone might have something stuck in their shoe that's making them feel uncomfortable and put them out of sorts. So if you're dealing with anyone, and I think what her advice was to me, was, you know, think of it from their perspective and put yourself in their shoes. And actually, it's surprising how by doing that, you often find yourself it's getting easier to get through life in a way that works for you and for them. My thanks to Eamon Ryan for his time and join me back here next week for another episode.